Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale our business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. Uh, we have been trying to have you for a long time. Her name is Daniela Braga, the founder and CEO at Defined AI. Daniela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's my pleasure. Awesome. And you have an amazing store. And maybe the, the best way to start is to say that you are the human CEO raising the most capital in AI in the world, 81 million uh, so far. And also a good start to add to this disclaimer would be that less than 2% of funding goes to women. So I, I always like to talk about this and sorry for talk for such for such a long time without uh, letting you introduce yourself, but I think that's that's the best way also to introduce you. I like to share the, those stats, which is only 4% of all companies get to 1 million in revenue, only 0.4% get to 10 million in revenue, and under 0.04% get to 100 million. So those numbers can be right or wrong, but they are more or less uh, correct in terms of how difficult it is to scale a company from zero to 100 million, which is what a VC packet tries to do. And less than 2% of female founders uh, are able to, to raise funds to be on that trajectory. So which you, you can apply the 2% times the 0.04% to understand what is the percentage of having a, a women founder uh, being at, at uh, post series B like you are. So in that way, uh, let us know quickly <laughs> a little bit more about yourself and Define AI. We agreed that we'll not do a, a full presentation because you have several podcasts and several articles out there that people can, can see and watch. So we'll try to, to do this uh, a different podcast where you can share different insights so other people can also learn from, from your experience. Well, I think you touched a couple of points. First, uh, how, how did I do this? Uh, I think that's one of the questions. Um, and uh, a little bit about my background. I, I, I guess I have a, a, an outlier background because I come from linguistics uh, and, I, and, and I did, did a PhD in voice technologies. So moving, it, it was already AI, it wasn't called AI in the, back in the day. Uh, but I did that movement from linguistics to engineering, which might sound strange, but actually is exactly what it's required in uh, the AI world where you need a multidisciplinary approach to, mm -hmm. to things. Uh, it also, I mean, I've, we've been, I've also have a background moving from academia, but not, not in spending enough time in academia to not ruin my ruin me, as I usually say, uh, enough but not too much, and enough time in big corporations like Microsoft, also enough but not too much, because I I keep saying there's a fine line between spending uh, passing that breaking point where you're no more no more able to think out of the box, mm -hmm. to take risks, and to stay resilient. And and uh, and we see that often. Even with us, we have a hard. We 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 avoid uh, hiring people who have stayed too long in any of the in any place because that's that's uh, AI is such an area of evolution that you can never take anything for granted. You have to always come with a fresh uh, look and not be afraid of of seeing things 180 degrees differently. So I also have been, uh, I've, I have been privileged to move around the world. I mean, this was an opportunity uh, that I, I was presented to myself, but I guess it also shows that not being afraid to experiment things like moving from Portugal to China with Microsoft when, my, when I had a one-year-old wow. baby uh for a woman for a woman it's it's it was a big deal and i guess most people wouldn't have done it and moving from china to the united states where i landed uh, with in microsoft uh, headquarters and also had the the opportunity to experiment and to experience uh, life in a in the politics in in the headquarters of a big corporation right all all of this combined 
uh, I mean, three years later, I've been in the United States for 11 years and out of the country for like now 14, 15. Uh, all of this combined uh, gives, gives me an attitude of risk-taking, uh, looking at things always from a different angle, not being uh, stopped by a closed door. I always say there's always another way, even when things look really dark and really impossible. Uh, you just have to uh, take, a, take a deep breath, uh, recenter yourself, and and uh, and look and wake up the next day with a white page, even if it's not, and you have all the baggage, but but always with that fresh attitude uh, of of not being afraid. So I guess that's that's what explains that. But I do also say that it takes me. I mean, my male peers when they're fundraising, they usually count how many meetings they've been having. I, I stopped counting because I know for a fact that I need to take five more meetings with investors than they do. I, uh, I have to, uh, it does, with, with customers, it's, it's maybe not uh, as hard to get a meeting. It's still hard to close a business, uh, it's especially to keep going. Yep. And then you have all the, the difficulties of scaling a company from 10 people to 50 to 100 to 200 to 300. And those are the big challenges. That, those for me are the biggest challenges, uh, even, even more so than raising capital. Right. Some, some highlights about what you just said and just to give some context to, to the audience. So you come from uh, originally from, from Portugal, uh, Europe, then move it to China and, and the US, uh, really uh, international uh, experience. And um, I forgot what I wanted to, to, to say uh, next, which, which is also always great. But, um, but anyway, um, but maybe I can I can say what we do. Yeah. How about that? Well, so, so Define AI is the largest marketplace of training data for AI in the world. Ethically trained, ethical data. Uh, and I want to emphasize this piece because it's um, we started already with that concern of being able to uh, source data, and actually back to the why did I start a company in the, in the data space in AI? Right. I uh, I was uh, uh, for the, I mean I've been working in speech uh, technologies and language technologies mm -hmm. for all my life really. So it's been twenty two years by now uh, since my academic background. I was doing I I, I worked in my first. Uh, project at University of Porto was building the first text-to-speech system for blind people in European Portuguese, which back then was an accessibility uh, project. And today, text-to-speech is mainstream, and you see it on avatars, you see it on the, your Siri phones, on your Google Assistants, on the Alexas, and so on. So, uh, so we, we, the problem of data uh, became well data became a problem when we moved from rule-based systems in ai which was more it was more coding at back then to training models through data so we moved from rules to data-driven models which was around the year 2010 the 2010 year uh, decade where cloud computing became a thing and, uh, and, and the first uh, conversational AI systems started to come together, bringing the, the speech groups and the language yeah. groups, maybe. so essentially the people building voice uh, technologies and the people building text technologies uh, came together and, and started to, to build conversational AI, which is this, this more natural interaction with, with computers. So, the, the problem of data and big data became a real matter in 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 the AI world, and became uh, and the and and trying to get it consistent, trying to get it uh, uh, high uh, high quality and scale, 
uh, that's that was a challenge I was already having in Microsoft with my my role at the time, which was managing the data uh, and at some point managing a budget of fourteen million dollars to collect data for 20, uh, 26 languages of the Microsoft mm -hmm. products. And we couldn't basically spend the money because there was nothing scalable enough. Uh, first of all, we needed the, a lot of data and we couldn't spend the money because there was nothing in the market that was scalable enough to collect, the, uh, to amass all those amounts of data. Of course, the big five tech companies started to go on a different route by putting products out, out in the market where like Google search and voice search, uh, putting products out, doing voice search and you start using them, but they were free products for search. And, and, and this was before GDPR. So data was starting to flow in for free without people's awareness and consent of what their data was being used for. But this was, the, this was the reason why I started Define AI, to create a platform that was set sourcing simulated data in an ethical way, paid and consented. And at the same time, uh, allowing a representation of, the, of, the, of, of dem demographics that, to, to prevent bias in, in AI, which we know that all comes, all bias starts with data and so this is, this is basically what we've been doing. We moved from, we still have our factory of data. We started to build a whole GitHub of data, uh, which is our marketplace uh, today, where people can go and buy machine learning ready, mm -hmm. consented and paid for and transparent data to build models at scale. And uh, and with uh, and you can buy it on a subscription. You can buy it on demand. Uh, and we bring partners who have who are sitting in large amounts of data, and for which we provide a seal of quality, a seal of trustworthiness, and we 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 help them monetize their data in our marketplace as well. Sounds great. And thanks for uh, covering me on, on my lapse of memory <laughs> some minutes ago. And the, what I wanted to highlight at the time was really your international experience and also the fact that you started in academia, as you said, uh, with a scientist uh, background, and then you evolved into large corporates and started your uh, own company, uh, this kind of uh, this this willing or this uh, need and uh, this courage to go beyond your comfort zone and always willing to to make the difference is is quite amazing. And in terms of stage of growth, where are you uh, at, Daniel, with Defined AI? So we're post Series B. Our uh, we've raised capital in 2020 was uh, our largest capital raise so far was 50 million in 2020 in the middle of the in the beginning of the pandemic um, <laughs> was the perfect perfect timing we we raise another uh what we call a b plus one which is a sort of a bridge until series c mm -hmm. uh i'm not gonna lie uh the pandemic affected us affected the i think most businesses were affected a lot of our competitors of bankrupted through the pandemic yeah. well a lot, and a lot of our large competitors were public traded companies uh, replaced leadership, replaced CEOs, and stocks went down and uh, revenues went down. So we did a breach because of course, uh, we, we, we were hoping without the pandemic to raise, you usually raise a, a round of capital every two years. We weren't quite ready to raise a Series C uh, after the two years. So we raised a, a bridge, what's called a bridge. Yeah. And we were able to actually secure, which was in line of our uh, strategy, secure uh, uh, a government deal in Portugal uh, under the Resilience and Recovery Program to develop uh, a, a new portfolio product uh, to basically reach the buyers of AI. So there are two types of consumers of AI in the world, the builders of AI. So the, cons the consumers, meaning those who build AI and those right. who buy AI to decide not to develop AI, but to buy an end-to-end -end solution. And we discovered over, 
I mean, I've been paying attention, obviously. I'm in this field for 22 years. What was becoming very obvious is that there's only two countries or three, but with a very big gap between them. There's two, there's the United States is the biggest builder of AI. Mm -hmm. uh, last year alone, there was $93.5 billion invested in AI wow. uh, in the country. Uh, mostly private sector, but some public sector, I mean, the DOD is one of the agencies that invests more in AI in the United States, followed by China. And I don't have the numbers of China in 2022, but I have the numbers in, of China in 2021. But in 2021, the United States moved from 55 billion to 93.5 billion last year. Oh. So 2021 to 2022, they doubled almost investment. Right. I expect that China did the same. China was at 17 billion of investment in 2021. Uh, I don't have the numbers of 2022, but I would expect they doubled it too, followed by the UK with 5 billion. And that's it. These are the only company, countries really building AI. Everybody else is so incipient, so small, so small attempts, because there's a couple of things. For one, uh, the new trend of generative models require amounts of data that are inimaginable. Mm -hmm. uh, and for two, the computing required is also impossible. I mean, you've got to be a Microsoft, a Google, um, an Intel, an Amazon to, uh, to, to be able to, to have the computing power to power generative models training. Mm -hmm. So everybody else is buying. And, and this, is, this is what we've been doing in our strategy. We are uh, building end-to-end -end solutions in very specific areas that, we, that make sense for us and that we see a need and what, for which we have data in our marketplace right. for to build conversational, in this case, conversational AI for markets outside the United States and soon to build other applications uh, uh, in the in the field of, of precisely to uh, to to fill the gaps of the buyers because uh, it's the the gap is is really too big most most companies and we now have um, we're looking for we're looking into the European uh, calls uh, European grants in AI uh, there are some things that are interesting which we can we can really contribute to the development of Europe I I'm really very passionate about having Europe catching up. That's great. In Europe, Especially after the numbers that you shared. Uh, Europe is, I mean, we, and UK left Europe, yeah. so it doesn't count anymore. Europe right. is but nothing. Even the UK, given the numbers that you shared, is 5% oh, yeah. of the amount that the US is investing. Absolutely. <laughs> so being very passionate, I'm trying to work with the commission to, to, and you have no idea how hard it is to find partners or have them to even be interested in working at a bigger scale than their 10 people companies. And this is the problem of Europe. We have to uh, change the mindset. People need to be much more aggressive, much more risk-taking, uh, risk more ambitious, but the investment also needs to exponentially grow. And I predict it's about 10 billion a year and we are 10 years behind the United States catching up the wave. Right. And there, that's a problem also of, of scale. Mm -hmm. We are seeing some movements uh, for, especially for something that was very unusual at Series A, uh, companies starting uh, working on their M&A strategies and uh, leveraging this moment of the market to buy some potential competitors or adjacent products that might help them to, to strengthen the platform or the core product. Do you see any opportunities there also for Defined AI to, to try to buy and build? Uh... Well, yes. Uh, in our Series C, which we are still working for, uh, <laughs> not this year, but now talking about very the likely this year, next year, yeah. uh, some of the strategies in Series C involve uh, a merge and acquisition. So basically looking at a, a complementary partner uh, that we can join efforts 
buying uh, technologies or assets that make sense for our marketplace, uh, of course, and, and of course, continue to invest on our existing Well, We have a very aggressive partnership program to, to bring as many uh, ethical sources of partners to our marketplace. But like I said, we need to reach to the rest of the world that is not building and is buying. And maybe in a year, they will be able to build if uh, some of these tools are becoming more, uh, which I think it's the trend. We will start seeing more and more uh, uh, machine learning technologies being available to the public uh, on which you, so you build on top of existing technologies as OpenAI is doing that already, exposing, uh, exposing their, their models that are pre-built and you fine tune them on top of existing uh, large models that they are building. So this is where, again, we can continue to enable those, but right now the, the world is either you buy and you're very, very strong and, you, and, and the market is moving towards an aggregation. You see less and less. Uh, so all, all companies making a stride are being acquired by the big corporations uh, and, and the smaller companies will have a hard time to, to last unless they really uh, combine, combine. But it's hard when you're a small company of 10 people, like I see all over Europe, any ML company that is in Europe, there are 10 people, right. there are four people. It's hard to have the vision, the drive and the network to combine efforts. This needs to be a, a supported effort with the, the European Commission. Got it. And coming back to to the to the initial topic that we were uh, covering for the women executives that are thinking about starting their own company and are trying to find the courage to move forward am i prepared am i not prepared to to start my own company or even for the ones who just raised the pre-seed round and uh, are trying to raise a seed or or a series a um you, you said something in a recent panel in in says or ces uh, one of the main conferences in, in the beginning of, of the year uh, in the US, uh, that it was really important to you to have confidence and to have strong self-worth uh, in order to be more effective in your fundraising efforts. So, um, and, and you shared different examples uh, about that. So any, any tips uh, based on your own experience raising all this capital, for, for your vision of Define AI that would like Absolutely. to share. I keep saying that my secret power is knowing my worth since I'm a little girl. And I I know that I, and I had to grab, to hold on to something that I mastered. I usually say we women cannot spin being good at everything like men. Men comment on anything. They are good at everything and the world listens. But us women, <laughs> we cannot. It's difficult to that. be on this side. <laughs> but that's the truth. You see men commenting about any topic, and and everybody listens, and and they don't, and they don't know, they don't, they if they master one of them, fifty percent, they still feel confident, and the confidence they portray is enough to 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 get the message through. Women already come from. Uh, uh, self-defeated uh, mentality that is very much um, it's it's worldwide it's very much supported by millennia of having women uh, put on the sidelines and not and re removing economic power and education from them so obviously we're coming out from the 60s 70s with the first women getting to college, allowing to be to vote, being allowed to vote, uh, working, joining the working class. So it, we're talking, it's the discrepancy. It's very, very difficult to obviously reach. But this is, this is what I, my secret power was holding on to something that I mastered. And, and it became uh, AI over time, but it, it's, it started with my academic uh, uh, excellence. I was always very competitive and very, uh, very proud of being mastering my academic excellency, which is not an, enough, of course, in for anybody, men and women alone. You, 
you start, but, but for women, I mean, women oftentimes resort to the traditional, to, to, the, to the beauty, to the, to the youth. And those are no resources that, are, that last, nor give the credibility you need in the business world. So, uh, and, and even if you are a, a celebrity and a, and a model and a top model and, a, and a, an actress, actually on the actors, on the Hollywood world, you see how many women complain and talk about uh, how they uh, their net worth decreases right. every decade, while men keep a high and continue to go up. So, pay scale is another problem in any in world, sports, including, including in that world. So, so yeah, I I would say hold on to something that you know, master it because, and then learn the soft skills. And the, the soft skills are. The power of networking is very important. I learned that mm -hmm. very early days. Uh, uh, in the beginning, you you don't know exactly what you're looking for, but just by being open to listen to other people, to get to know other people, to understand how they think, how they live, uh, it's so you know, so powerful and enriching. And learning to empathize what with them, this usually is a very good passport to. One day later, you reach out and people listen to you and open the door to you. So I think those two things combined, since we take, we have our, and, and women are good at that because women are better at emotional intelligence than men. Um, right. They kind of, they kind of read the other better. They, we're used to read that, to, to, to use our emotional IQ, our emotional intelligence uh, for many years, for many millennia to also get away right. with. So I think those two superpowers combined are very, very important. But that, yes, so, but that, that's not enough. Uh, another, another thing that I also see is that women, oftentimes I, I have women coming to me and start, are starting a company. They will, they also cannot expect just because they're women. And there's, there's the other extreme of women that, just because they're women, they expect to be given a break. We're not gonna be given a break in business, regardless. Just because you are trying to, to build, the, to fill in the quota, we're not gonna, and they, they don't come prepared. And this is very often common mm -hmm. with women. They have not thought it through. They are not, they have not, uh, they have an idea. They're so early stage, but they have not, uh, everything you do, you gotta be a hundred percent prepared. Even in every conversation, if you're not prepared, you better you may, may as well not just not even show up, because you're you're you're, you're burning bridges, and we women have less options, so we can't everything. But that should not discourage you. We just have to do our homework well and get very well prepared for every conversation. Right. And have that support network that you were talking about and, and build your uh, network as well. Uh, and there were some sentences that you said in that panel that really shocked me. So, for instance, something that you were like, scientists can't be uh, CEOs. This, this can apply also for men and women uh, of, of that background. But again, it affects more uh, women. That uh, other thing that I, that I really was shocked was... Uh, I, I was encouraged by my investors to uh, to not have another kid when I had my uh, my daughter uh, with thirteen years yes, old. Absolutely. So yeah, which is really kind of crazy in the world that we live uh, today. Uh, and of course, we know that every single founder, uh, and we were sharing the the numbers, is super hard to build a company, and especially a VC packet company is really the Champions League or the Olympic Games uh, of business. And we know what the odds are always against us. But especially when we apply those two percent, it becomes that it's even more difficult when we have uh, another two layer. things that that of like Daniela. You have you can you're not going to have any more children, right? Because that's not going to be good for your business, and for you and for the perception. That's one thing, but also the fact that um, it took me years to convince my board to uh, to to support me in childcare. 
I have, I am the one on the road every time. I've been, I am the one who has to show face. And men have the wives at home. And that's, so for many years, I had to fight this corporate expense of, of expensing a nanny. Mm-hmm. This is not a corporate expense in the, right. because men don't need a corporate expense like that. They have wives at home. Right. And I had to fight for years to actually have a corporate expense approved. So <laughs> like that with a nanny, which, which of course, in the last few years, it's been covered, uh, but it wasn't. And it's not common. And I wonder how many women face those types of issues as well. The good news, it is possible, and Daniela is here proving us that it is possible to get there. Still, to so very very difficult, and we want to to change that, and we need to change that. But we need role models, and that's great that that we have role models to look for and also to ask help for. And uh, something also interesting that we we discussed it when we were preparing this uh, episode of of the podcast. Uh, is how fast the world of VC packet companies goes, right? So sometimes you are a little bit ahead of the curve and someone reached out to you asking for help and maybe you are at Series A or Series B and they are at seed or, or pre-seed stage and, and maybe our company as more late stage founder doesn't go so well, doesn't go so fast and then those companies uh, can raise a Series C and we were not able to raise the, the next round. And so it is important, as you said, to show empathy and to to stay humble and to not take it for granted and try to support others. uh, And to support other founders, especially if they are. So I understand. I mean, it's hard to be stretched in with every every request I get. But I tell you that every time I approached a a more advanced uh, CEO, I oftentimes have zero help especially and I was as well there's no more there's no women CEOs that I know that are ahead right but the men also don't help and off and and so I try to always remind myself that I have a lot of founders trying to reach out I always try to make time for people uh I just but I do want people to understand that if you go to talk with, if you talk to someone, you have to be prepared and you need to right. know what you're asking for because every time, every minute counts. But just to explain that there's very little uh, camaraderie between founder CEOs as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I can't say it's everywhere and everyone, right. but it's, I would say 1% of other CEO founders and which are men usually actually are receptive because they are not and i would suspect that they're much more receptive to each other in the bros club as i usually see and say but they're definitely not receptive to talk with another with a woman's founder that is at the same level or a little behind them this is another problem but but again that doesn't change the the, the taking, I usually say to, to have a seat at the table, you can't win it or deserve it. You have to take it. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> and that's, you don't, you don't expect the world to give you a seat at the table or men to give you a seat at the table because they won't. You have don't to ask take for it. permission. <laughs> and, and so that's, that's, that's what we do. And that's what I do. But uh, women have, uh, the fact that women don't have representation or a say in uh, investment as well. So, and it's all, all over the place. So in VCs and private equity firms, M&As, anything, anything that represents a growth or an exit, you don't see women there, barely. And the women who are there are the analysts. They don't, they are not the partners. They don't have a, a vote in the, in the final process. Um, but even if they did, I have to say that I was told by women, early stage women, when I was in early stage phase, raising my first million, and you see more women, women in angel investment, uh, because that's where they, they are, they are more in the angel, they don't have enough capital or influence to be in a later stage. Women are also not helpful to each other. 
I, I, I heard from one woman that I should tone down, that I should be less arrogant, which if I was a man, I would be, I would be called confident, but because I'm a woman, I'm called arrogant by another woman. This is very, very common too. And I also want to say that I'm not, I'm not, I'm where I am where I am really because of men who gave me an opportunity because women that oftentimes are the worst enemies of each other. They do not give you an opportunity. Great uh, insights. <laughs> so we know. And that we need to change that. I don't know why is that. I don't know why is that, but it's very, I think we need more women that made the path that are confident were in their skin that don't that that we are now in a point to give back but women are so so concerned about competition in our small world small world of when we reach some place that they don't help each other unfortunately right. and this is valid for corporate world where i've been was the same story and for uh, investment world and for peer groups as well Incredible. And we know that the, the agenda and the life of a CEO is, is quite complex. We have always more to, to do than, than the hours that we have in, in the day. And that's why you, what you said, when we are able to try to give back and pay it forward, it's, it's important for people to show up prepared so we can also uh, give as much value as possible out of the constraints that we have, which is exactly. uh, our time. Right? And something that is also important in that regard is how to choose well the the right investors. So we can also take a lot of meetings uh, that will not be the the good fit, making us lose uh, a lot of time. Any any tips from your experience there uh, on how to identify? And this yes. to oh my god, board members in general. Right? So the, on that topic, my goodness, it took me three years maybe to understand the dynamics and uh, their, the, the investors' uh, capability because it wasn't written anywhere. No, There's no playbook about these things. There should be, maybe there is, I just haven't found it yet. And, and really these are simple things like this. Starts with, can an investor lead or do they only follow? I spent, I can't tell you how many, how many months I wasted on the early stage investors that were all around us to, to get to the conclusion they can't lead a deal. And they are not respectful of the time they will make us waste uh, under the assumption. we. I mean, I did not know what was lead and follow back then. And the fact that some investors cannot even lead but they appear as such, it's the first question anybody needs to, answer, uh, to ask. Can you lead? And what's, your, what's the check size? So I know what do I need to fill back in the followers? So that's the first question. And this is valid in any round, really. But you don't know that until you're there. And I wasted lots of time with lots of people that, uh, made, that couldn't lead and then, you know, Second thing was, can you afford me? Because the second thing, a lot of times investors are all over you, especially the early stage ones, but they, their check sizes are small, which is fine in the early stage, but they also have an expectation of evaluation uh, that, that it's, I mean, I guess they, they're hoping that you run out of cash to pull the weight on the valuation they want. Right. But but that's not that's very unfair. You need to say, what's your expectation valuation? This is a question that and I know nobody wants to mm -hmm. ask. This is a very this is very difficult because it's almost like you're getting married with someone and you want to ask the, your partner what's the size of your bank account, which is really hard <laughs> conversation to have when you're when you're marrying. You, you leave those things for the last minute, usually. <laughs> But but the reality is, is, is that, is how do you assess in an elegant way that the valuation they're expecting and they can afford what you're expecting and the, what the market out there 
you're not missing out on the market. And sometimes it's a timing thing. I mean, you can you can close on an investor because you want to get out over with the the fundraising, which is fair. You, you, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a choice and it's a fair choice. It depends on how long you can last as well. So all of those things are to consider, but there's no playbook telling you that. Then in the end of the day, what kind of what do they, what involvement do they want to have? Do they want to have a board seat, mm-hmm. which can be a pain in the ass? Or and if they are if they want a board seat, do they how helpful will they be? Most mm-hmm. investors only come with money and a lot of headaches because they sit on the board and they don't add value. And it's really hard and to distract you. understand that. And, and it's really hard to understand. So there's ways to do that. Um, you can call other uh, CEOs who have been invested. You can uh, take longer to get to know them. So this is why this was something I also learned to do. And I never, I still don't do this very well, which is you get it. Investors is like dating. You have to keep dating with them even if it's only for the next two, three, four years right. that you're going to land them. Because you need to see how do they behave, how do they approach, what kind of questions, how doors that they open to you, meaningful introductions, whether they are business-wise or, or sometimes just association. I mean, sometimes all you need is a good lawyer or a good bank to back up right. or, a good, uh, or a good uh, consulting firm, whatever that is, or a good partner to ideally a customer which is very rare that they bring but or sometimes just healthy brainstorming which is what a board member should do is provide you with a healthy brainstorming angle without necessarily telling you what to do because in the end of the day it's up to the ceo to define to decide and and uh, and and that should be the case unless Unless the company is so sideways that the board needs to intervene, and that's that's not a good place to be. <laughs> exactly, and we know that one of the most important jobs of a CEO is to ensure that uh, we have the the right people on the right st- seats for each stage of growth. So the right leadership team, and this is especially more complex when we have kind of a diverse culture, or when we come from 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 Europe to to the US. <laughs> Given the differences of culture uh, in Europe and uh, and the US and the competitiveness uh, or the crazy competitiveness competitiveness in in the US, we there are some examples that I find very curious and I was just chatting with my wife about it recently, which is how the Shark Tank is lasting for thirteen years or fifteen years uh, in the US, and in other countries uh, it is almost dead, which shows kind of the culture, the entrepreneurial culture. It, it's not because Mark Cuban is still there. It's because the audience is still excited about watching Mark Cuban doing investments and learning from investments and wishing, desire, having the desire to be there and, and become one of one of the founders pitching investors or the, 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 the sharks uh, at some time. Um, what are some of your uh, conclusions? I know that we are uh, getting short on time here, but uh, I'd like to pick your brain on that as well. Well, cultural differences. I'll, yes, have a lot to say about that. But um, I also want to say, since you mentioned Shark Tank, that I love Shark Tank. I haven't <laughs> been following Shark Tank for a few years, but it was my training school before I started the company. I devoured every episode of Shark Tank in the year before I started the company. So just <laughs> we love it. Actually, I, I watch with my wife. <laughs> that's, that's the way we relax. <laughs> it, it, I, I remember thinking, oh my God. So if you actually can endure that, you can, you'll be fine. So absolutely. And that's it's not in the real life is not as bad. Of course, it's for the show. Yeah. It's not as bad, meaning the outcome is as bad. The real life is <laughs> exactly. not as bad in the interaction. <laughs> it's Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> just just uh, let offering you royalties. <laughs> no, but the cultural difference. I mean, uh, I, I usually say my biggest challenge is always building a team. Uh, I can deal with investors. I can deal with resilience. I can deal with pandemics. And I can deal with... Uh, 
with all of, of the above and, 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 and difficult customers. But the team, oh my God. And what I've been experiencing is that by building a company in the two sides of the Atlantic, somehow I had the, uh, the, the illusion that uh, Portugal and the United States are not that different. And the, and the we, Portuguese people speak English. We've, we grew up exposed to American culture how hard that can be. I mean, in America, I, I blended in very well. How hard can that be? But it is, it is. So, and what the worst is that it's a silent, it's a silent break of uh, or a silent gap of cultures because people don't, don't confront each other, especially the Portuguese. We don't, we're not a very confrontational culture. The Americans are very much more confrontational. So you don't debate the differences. You shut down and you do something else and you don't, you don't enter in a dialogue. So, uh, and, but I mean, both sides have amazing things. Both sides have not so amazing things. I'm <laughs> getting to that. Maybe I'm going to talk about the positives. The, the US has the entrepreneurial spirit, the hardworking ethics, uh, the um, uh, the um, the creativity, the thinking mm-hmm. out of the box, but the, but at the same time, the US has. I, I'm not going to say it's a loyalty problem. It's more of a people give up in face of a difficulty and mm-hmm. start over. And so they don't. I think the resilience. Uh, I, I would say that Portugal has a much long enduring resilience to difficulty people don't give up that easily it's not a loyalty problem even though it looks like loyalty because people quit and go but portugal people don't quit that doesn't mean that they don't quit some do but they quit less but they don't speak up so they suffer in silence and that's worse so I, i i almost like i prefer the direct approach of uh, not happy, pick up or go. Exactly. Um, and it happens at all levels and leadership has a hard time to align mindsets and it's very subtle. So the promise is very subtle because, because it's uh, a number of values but people just don't speak up or don't, dial- don't do a dialogue, open dialogue that actually... So yeah, it's been it's been hard. It's been hard. We went through a lot of transformation during the pandemic. It was not also easy to uh, triple the team during the pandemic when in a time where people were from home. So there's no culture that you can build like that. You bring a bunch of new people to a company that never see each other for a long time in person. I don't believe in a model like that, even though now we're all sort of remote. I think you have to build the face-to-face relationships to be solid. What and is the size of? Sorry, yeah. Sorry, I conclude, Daniel. No, just saying that we we grew and we readjusted because okay. at the end of the day, uh, I think like following the trend of everybody, yep. we realized that there was, especially the pandemic, hit a lot of unproductive. Unproductivity. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we're seeing is macroeconomics, but it's also the realization that people are not productive as they used to be. So we don't need so many people, all of us in tech, because they're because because they're really hiding under the comfort of their homes. So and there's always those who work 150 percent, but there's a lot that don't, and and the <laughs> pandemic allowed that to be less visible. So this phenomenon of tech layoffs is a a right sizing, considering what people are really producing versus what the company needs. Right. So let's go to the last segment of the show where I will ask you three quick questions. Give me 
three brief answers and that we will not talk about the resources today because I need to protect your time. So let's go with the first one. If you would have the opportunity to have a coffee with Daniela uh, in 2015 or December of 2015, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Ah, well, I would advise, uh, I would say, be, stay, um, never forget to, to self-center yourself. I wasn't very good at that back then. Uh, listen to your body sometimes when your body asks give yourself permission to readjust because um, because this is a marathon and back then I wasn't quite sure I didn't know this was going to be a marathon so the the marathon concept hit me in my first million when actually Sony who led our our um First our first seed round, uh, Sony in Tokyo tells me, do you understand this is a marathon? And I, I, back then I didn't. Uh, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So you got to give yourself a little bit break, be a little bit easy on yourself. We are not. And us women, we're not usually. We are always putting ourselves in the last place of everyone at the family level and I am a mother too at the company level at at everyone you're in the end of the of the priority lane um, and and priority line and and this is what I would say to myself and I still have to remember remind I'm better at that now but I still have to remind me that this is a marathon you got to be kind to yourself often <laughs> and what are you the most proud of on your journey so far, Danielle? Oh my goodness. Um, so many things I've been, I've been proud of. I'm proud of, um, I'm proud of the, of the fundraising, I have to say. It's a huge accomplishment. I mean, it's, it's not alone to say that. I'm proud of, uh, I'm proud of the recognition, of the world recognition. I mean, the fact that I was invited by the, the President Biden's the CTO office to join uh, the 12, the group of 12. I mean, it, it speaks to, to, I mean, I come from nothing and, and I'm an immigrant, immigrant in the United States. It speaks to this world recognition of my expertise. So it pays off to be mastering a field, see? <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm very proud of the, even though uh, the team uh, and some people come and go and this is the world we, it, people come and go because a marathon is not for everyone right. that's the reality and my journey is not their journey but I'm so proud of the team I've been building over the years uh, and and very and even those who are no longer here we have of the fun we have together and to conclude, the worst advice ever received. To tone down my confidence. Be more humble. <laughs> Be more I humble. Was, <laughs> we have mentioned here so many bad advices that, that you received. <laughs> that I was curious about the one you would be choosing to, to highlight. So that, that's a great one. Danielle, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. You are always welcome to, to share the next chapters. We, I feel that we have so much more to talk and to share with the audience. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. And to our community, thanks for being on that side. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.